0: Sunday was International Women's Day and I'd like to dedicate today's show to women and gender non-conforming folks, anyone whose work or life has been dismissed, disregarded, questioned or underrated because of their gender, how they behave, what they do, who they are. And today's guest has just released a book of meditations on her life, a life uh, as a woman living alone publisher and writer Donna Ward's She, I Dare Not Name, A Spinster's Meditations on Life, is a woman looking over her life and finding all the nuance as she eloquently writes its currents and stagnations, its flow, meaning and belonging without the automatic answers that family, children and lovers provide. Donna will join me very, very soon. Mm -hmm. Triple R on FM Digital online via the app. This book is a meditation on the life that came of choosing the best happiness on offer. It is a meander through my life as an Australian spinster that bears witness to how I created meaning and belonging without the automatic answers that family, children and lovers provide. I write to shatter the stereotype that shadows me in a singular narrative, a narrative that writes me out of my own society. I write because in the 21st century, others choose or are chosen to live this life more frequently. So writes Donna Ward in She I Dare Not Name, A Spinster's Meditations on Life, a collection of interlinked essays that follow a life, its currents and stagnations, its flow. Donna joins me now to talk about this lyrical and nuanced collection and the life, hers, that inspired it. Donna, welcome to Backstory.
1: Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Now, this is a book that I found incredibly moving to meander through with you. Uh, you are very much describing a life, any life mm. uh, it could be, but it's yours. Uh, yes. And you've reclaimed some of the notions within it. Uh, you know, it, I want you to talk about this collection, uh, where it was first inspired. We, we're going to be able to spend a lot of time together yes, in this show. So I'm looking forward to really unpicking more mm-hmm. about it. Mm. But where did you set sail uh, writing this collection?
1: Well, um, I began this book when I was in my 40s. Actually, um, my mother had just died and I'd gone travelling, which is something that I do when uh, life hits, hits hard. And I was in Devon visiting a friend, staying with her, and she said, what are you going to do with the rest of your life now? No pressure. I <laughs> know. Well, I had an answer for her and that was that I thought I'd write a book that at that time I was confronting the idea that I was single so I was in my 40s at that stage and I was I'd already um, said goodbye to the idea that I was going to have children but I was really coming to terms with the idea that I wasn't going to have a family life um, at all and my uh, ancestors if you like my mother and father were dead by that stage and so I had no ancestors and I had no descendants, so it was hitting pretty hard how life might go for me. So I said to her, well, I've been looking at uh, reading books about being single and they don't seem to cover my life. They cover the lives of single mothers, um, of women and men who are separated, divorced, widowed lots of different forms of being single, but um, very few stories about what you would call spinsters. Now, I just want to say I started this book as a single woman and came out a spinster, and I'm not quite sure what that means uh, in in our society today. But what it meant for me was I needed a word that really uh, talked about my life and how it goes. And the word that suits is spinster. Now, my life isn't as negative as we would like to think the word spinster is. But if I use that word, you've got more of a sense of how my life goes than if I say I'm just single. Absolutely. And
0: wasn't the kind of, you know, etymology of that term sort of uh, literally women who worked as spinners, like people who spun wool or other kind of, I guess, uh, I'm clearly not a crafty (laughs) person, you know, who spun things uh, and made money accordingly. So it's
1: really, uh, you know, working women. They were valued for many, many years. So it's very early days of the Industrial Revolution when uh, women, well, people were not um, farming so much and they were working in factories and there were were also, uh, what do you call it, uh, um, silk weavers as well, They were women who were working at Weaving Silk and then there was the spinsters who were spinning. And these women were young women, uh, not yet married women. They were seen as highly valued and beautiful and nubile and uh, a real prize to catch um, into marriage, if you like, um, because they had money in their pocket. So they were were working and um, fulsome women in many ways, it didn't really lose its um, its value until after Elizabeth I died. So she died in 1603, I think. Um, and a few years after that, maybe 30 years after that, uh, I know the facts are in the book right, but, you know, I'm old. Sorry, my brain's not working. But uh, somewhere in the, the after that, um, her death, the, there were some f- of the first dictionaries were appearing and it's in those dictionaries that we start to see the term spinster being identified with a woman who has remained unmarried after a certain age and a bachelor is the term that's used for a man who's remained unmarried during, after a certain mm-hmm. age, after the age they consider to be legitimate. And But both terms have had times of greatness and times of, uh, not-so-greatness, bachelors, uh, the word bachelor and, and bachelors in America in the late um, 1800s, uh, late eighteenth 19th century. So I'm thinking about 1890. Uh, at that time, after the Civil War in America, there were a lot of single men and they were considered rogue bachelors and they were... <laughs> considered a threat to civil society they still somewhat are yes (laughs) yes but they don't carry that negativity in fact you know with our current shows and everything bachelors and bachelorettes are highly glossed very attractive young people about to get married
0: yeah and it's important to note this book is not a polemic it's not Mm. a um you're not sort of you know Mm. like following or ascribing you know in this kind of doctrinaire way to to any of the ideas that we that we toss up in in modern you know like no. mm. uh, like in second wave third wave or yes. fourth wave feminism although it crosses all of those mm. time periods and you know and is sort of a really interesting running theme because regardless of all of these things going on being a person alone particularly a woman alone is something that is still a highly defiant act or seen mm. as such even if it is as you very much describe you sort of like somewhat falling like Icarus to your fate uh, as you as you put it although you go back and forth on this And this is, again, what I love. This is very much a meditation on Mm. things. You're, you know, it's heavily philosophical. Mm. It's dreamlike. You're, you know, you're kind of focusing on um, elemental metaphors. Mm. There's a lot in this book that I think anyone, even those who are not alone in that, in the sense Mm. that you're describing will will understand. And there is, I want to talk about the kind of, you know, the essay or the uh, the kind of... uh, Embarkation point for this book, which is where you talk about people who've discussed solitude or si- and and have mm. used it as almost synonymous with silence. Mm. And what, there was a wonderful kind of observation that you make in that, that these are people who have you know, a broader kind of social network or family beyond that, someone mm. who loves them, who's mm. waiting for them mm. beyond the page, beyond that, that period that has a defined beginning and end of solitude. Mm. Uh, but you're saying yours is a very different experience because the solitude is continuous mm. and it's a, a different understanding. Mm. Can you talk about this notion of continued solitude and how it differs from... From the way it's been represented uh, in
1: literature, I think so. It's so many ideas of just, or responses have just popped into my head as you were speaking. So I'll, I'll try and sort of marshal them if I could. But um, so there's an idea that silence and solitude are synonymous, and they're actually not. Um, I feel, or my response is that silence is almost impossible unless you are in the middle of the snow or in the middle of the desert. You might grab a little bit of silence, but even then you'll probably be hearing the, the planet turn. It's it's not an actual, I think, reality, total and utter silence. But solitude is, is a, an utter reality. Um, many people choose a, a confined amount of time for solitude. They might do a retreat they might go to the forest they might go to the South Pole and find their silence but in their soul in their psyche they have a family um, or they know that people are holding the thread so they're not utterly alone they're just separate from their regular daily life and getting a sense of or perhaps reconnecting to who they are now I, um, I've i had times in my life when I've sought out solitude. When I was working uh, in a busy job, I would seek out solitude and be grateful for it. And I certainly, you know, went walking in the forest was where I found that or swimming in the mornings, those sorts of things. But... As my life unfolded, I found that more solitude was voiced upon me than perhaps I was searching for, and I didn't know how to deal with the abundance of that, let's just say. And I had no guides or ideas because our conversation in in our world is that... Um, if you're living in the city, it's impossible to have solitude because apparently um, we're all busy racing around like, I don't know, rugrats or something. I don't know. Do they run around? I'm not sure. But th- that's what we're doing. Whereas what was happening to me was that I was not part of mainstream life. I wasn't being invited to family events um, I'm in mean, my friends' family events. Uh, my family actually were living in Western Australia, so that was too far away to turn up for a Sunday afternoon. But my friends were engaged on the weekends on in family life um, and so therefore not available for me. So even though I might have been walking down the street, I was in solitude and I'm now calling that urban solitude because it's there. But it's an unstructured solitude, unlike when you choose to go and do a retreat or even take take holy orders um, there's a structure in that solitude that I didn't have the first clue about and so I had to work that out for myself and in the book, I I hope. I've talked, um, written more about that but it's it's a way you need to find your own structure within this solitude so that it becomes nourishing um, and also so that it contains you when you do get lonely and hit the, the abyss um, or have a midlife crisis mm. like we all do, um, soli- solitude's a thing that that gets you through that and understanding of the structure of solitude gets you through that.
0: It's a really interesting difference, I guess, to this book that, you know, if you think of the classic meditation of like Virginia Woolf's *A Room of One mm. own, One's Own, this idea of never being alone, mm. being the lot of women particularly, uh, of not having a space that's theirs and seeking that. I think what isn't thought about is that that needs to be buttressed by some support system it for it to really mm. feel secure. And I mm. think, you know, that you know, when we think of the um, solitary writer or the solitary person, it's often a man who has a support structure that is shady and in the background yes. That, yes. that's just making that life possible. Yes. Um, I want to I, I want to keep talking to you, yeah, Donna Ward. And if you've just joined us and you're wondering what this whole conversation is about, and who we all are, I'm Mel Cranenberg. Uh, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R, and I'm talking to Donna Ward, author of "She I Dare Not Name: A Spinster's Meditations on Life," a wonderful collection of essays, or meditations, as Donna prefers to refer to them, that really unpack a life, you know, throughout all of its vicissitudes, one that happens to be lived alone. You're listening to a
1: Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm joined today by writer and publisher Donna Ward, the author of She I Dare Not Name A Spinster's Meditations. On Life, Uh, we've been talking about that collection uh, this hour. It's so nice to spend time (laughs) meandering through a book with the author. Mm. So on that note, uh, Donna, I would love you to read a collection that that bookends this this book Mm. uh, but in fact is the first thing that you wrote and really kind of illustrates where the writing started because, of course, this Mm. is a... This is a show about craft. Yes. So yes. let's. Uh, I, it is a, a long, longish reading, about mm. five minutes. But mm. I, I feel like this is an indulgence we can afford in this <laughs> very relaxed backstory episode. So please, if you would,
1: yes. uh, share with us um, this this piece oh, well. of your writing. So uh, this is um, the very first thing I deliberately, deliberately wrote for the book, and it's uh, the last essay in the book. It's called "Laying Down Fossils." It's dedicated to a friend of mine, Susan. It is the harshest sentence I will ever write. I will approach it cautiously, sideways, like a blue-skinned crab, claws ready to pinch. It arrived today and heralds more to come, for that is how it is with me. A sentence springs like Athena from the head of Zeus, fully formed, adult, sometimes it's days before i write it i hold on to that sentence until i sit with my notebook and one of my and one of the 6 dollar throwaway fountain pens i've come to love hopefully there's wine nearby and exquisite food tonight here in a winter restaurant on the great ocean road it's a piquant roquefort and a big shiraz from heathcote victoria i'll need plenty of wine touchdown the sentence rolls out. I watch the ink slip onto the paper. It's the first of a string seated in my DNA, threaded through my muscles and now aching to run like unfettered children across the page. I let my hand do the writing, let the words dart beyond my focus before I absorb their truth. The sentence arrived today as I curved around the coast one rugged bay at a time. It burst forth at the point where the old volcanoes of the Paleogene give way to the soft sand of the Cretaceous. The road was sharp, wet, rivers slipped into the ocean, the ocean worked at its business of erosion and the mountains looked solid the way they always do, despite their mudstone layers." A little rain and whole sections of this place collapse. It's old here, so old you can feel Godendwana stretching herself. This land holds fossils, plant fossils, fossils of the life that outlived dinosaurs, the life we farewell today. And this land is tired, so tired it wants nothing but to fall away. My friend, who works in the grocer's shop back in the Paleogene, where I stopped for supplies, said a severe hailstorm is on its way, said I shouldn't go on my own. I'm West Australian, I said. We drive in all sorts of weather. But the truth is, I've been living here long enough to know I belong to this country. And another truth is, I do things regardless of the weather, and I'm rather bad at taking advice, since I've made all my own decisions practically forever. My grocer friend said, in a fatherly tone that belied his youth, If it hails, pull over. Then he cocked his brow over his tortoiseshell glasses and returned to packing shelves. He meant well. He cares for me. Many do. But I'd never do anything if I waited for a companion. There was no hail. There were enormous skies, billowing clouds, luminescence and rain. An entire bay was laid out before me with rows of waves galloping into fallen cliffs. Above it, half a rainbow shimmered, large and fat and loud, a great stripe of a thing. It was an epiphanic kaleidoscope of colour crashing into the sea – At the furthest end of the bay, a lighthouse sparkled white in front of billowing clouds that streamed upwards in slow vertical curves. It was probably rain, sheets and sheets of it, but those clouds looked like the vibrations from the rainbow itself. It was a sign of sorts. The whole moment took my breath. Yes, that is what happened. I stopped breathing. My lungs emptied. I pulled the car to a halt by the side of the road, held my chest, pressed it so the rhythm would start again, so breath would rush in and I would come back to life. Breath returned, as did the world, the rivers and the ocean and all her horses, the mountains, scattered stones, the rainbow and the lighthouse and all the rosy, rosy light. And out of all this beauty, the sentence came. It seems a human right as basic as the right to breathe, that everyone has at least one person dedicated to them, a person who would be so distracted by grief they might not survive their loved one's passing. Yet here I am, personless in this world.
0: Thank you so much. That was uh, Donna Ward reading She I, from She I Dare Not Name, um, a spinster's Meditations on Life. And that comes from the final essay in the collection, which I believe is called Fossils. Laying Down Lay- Fossils. Da- laying Down yeah. Fossils. Now, you've, you've organised this collection. I mean, that was an incredibly evocative piece mm. of reading. And I, I do want listeners to note that, in fact, all of it is <laughs> like that. Um, you know, very definitely every stage of this book winds in this quite exquisite use of language. Uh, a real focus on the minutiae of writing mm. you you love to play with language and to get you can really feel you you rolling it around in your head mm. before it goes down on the page i want to firstly talk about that the the tiny little bricks of this book um, you know how do you write do you write like a poet is it is this an act of sort of layering on and laying, layering off uh, until you kind of build up to a whole
1: yes Uh, I have to say um, I like to write like a poet. Certainly poetry informs my writing in many ways. Um, Sadly, I have to say I cannot write a poem to save my life. I wrote one once and it got published but... (laughs) sorry a little bit of an interruption Uh, there (laughs) Um, and it got published that was a real um, fantastic moment but I really uh, am a prose person but I'm certainly using the techniques and the and the structures of poetry and I do that because poetry can just really get so much packed into a few words it gives you layers and layers of meaning, so that, and I love a good sentence when it comes. Um, and as I've just read to you, uh, I can't really begin a piece, a, a writing, a reflection or a meditation, uh, without that first sentence arriving it's it's and often it ri- arrives in the morning, sometimes it arrives when i 'm driving actually, those are the two places <laughs> do you just pull over and well, and not every down. time, but that just that scene was just it was breathtaking, mm-hmm. and I did pull over and then that sentence came and that night I wrote it down in the restaurant in in it was lawn on the great great ocean road, one of the restaurants there and so and sometimes, you know, it's, it's the most incredible experience, writing. I'll have this idea that I want to get across, like the difference between silence and solitude, for example, or, or this habit that I have of um a relationship with my house talking to yes. my house as if it's someone uh when it's not um In fact there's quite a bit of that the talking
0: to the to the inanimate objects or to yes. talking to the. I think it was the moon at one stage Oh the moon's
1: a great friend um, yes
0: which I which I think is this you know this great human urge to reach out you're very yeah, much to this, communicate this yeah. character but yeah. also uh, in a way, like this is really echoed by the way you've structured this book. I mm. mean, you've structured it um, in terms of the elements, uh, you know, particularly water, um, mm. a sense yes. of flow and flux. Yes. Uh, se- so there's many, many chapters and those chapters are individual meditations or essays, if you like, yes. uh, and it begins groundwater, water, fountainhead, night river, conflux, fluvia fluvia Flu- yes. which is a marvelous it's a word. Yeah, great word isn't so it? you've sort of really yeah. you've got this sense of flow and yes. and throughout the the book but you're also there's a lot of um, metaphor around rock and mm. around fire mm. um, that kind of match with the stages of life or with the concepts that you're Engaging with was this a deliberate, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the structure was.
1: Yeah, the the, the structure is deliberately um, the idea of the river, because I. I grew up on the Swan River, which is a, a massive river, you know, it's down near Perth. It's a very wide estuary and it, it has a huge influence on, on anyone who lives on the banks of it, I have to say. Um, and so I really wanted to capture that idea that life is a river or that we're floating on it or, or our... Dynamic with it, I was quite informed by Siddhartha by Hermann Hess and the idea that you know one is the river if you have to sit by the river and listen to the river and become the river in a way and also Rumi the poet talks about that idea as well. I wanted to carry that through my life because I think that 's a way in which um, that 's the way in which i 've survived in a way is to mm. get those um, big ideas about what life is. Um, into my life and understand it that way. I have yeah.
0: to... I, what I really also love about this book, I say, and there's many things, is is this, you know, that there are no... There's no pat axioms or truisms no. that you you just lean into. You, you yeah. are often deconstructing those. Like, for example, yeah. this whole, you know, so glad I'm in my name decade um, <laughs> because now I, you know, I just don't give an F about anything <laughs> and, like, yes. life is so much easier. And you don't say that. Like, you give... The this sense of acquired mm. wisdom and self knowledge without you know detracting from the great pain or loss or feelings of grief um, that you also feel mm. um it 's a very humanist novel in that uh, novel sorry rather essay collection in that way that you're you 're really sort of you know giving this this quite uh, i won 't say unvarnished because it 's very beautifully yes. woven but a real sense of a real life mm, you 're not Trying to sort of be a, um, I am not a wise woman
1: <laughs> that you can project your stuff on. I'm a, I'm a richly yes.
0: interesting, nuanced human. Yes,
1: and I, I look. I think uh, everyone has a life um, offered to them. Uh, and the best thing that we can do is step up to the life we have at hand. I could have felt, I did for many years feel terrible about the lot that I was given because this was certainly forced upon me. I had a different plan. Uh, but I think even in that... There's so much to be learnt from it. So, you know, I needed to step up to the grief and I needed to have every inch of it so that I knew what that was, because in the end we we're all river and and water and stone and flesh and we have this incredible opportunity. I still, you know, it it makes me emotional to think about it. We have an incredible opportunity. It is a minuscule amount of time to experience what it's like to be consciousness in flesh. And then it's over. And I just, you know, that's an amazing thing to me. And it, it. it boggles my mind every day that that's what we've got. It's
0: been really lovely to spend a relaxing nearly hour with Donna Ward, author of "She I Dare Not Name." Long form interviews truly are a delight. Yes, I hope you're enjoying it, all of you listeners out there as well. Donna, I would love to talk a little bit about one of the the parts or you know of your book that you know, really moved me, which was, you know, you describing uh, becoming unwell, having a horrible kind of, you know, uh, tinnitus-like sort of presentation that meant you had to go uh, to a doctor and talk about, um, you know, next steps and mm. um, and that you were asked for a, a next of kin and, you know, really had to stop to think about who to put down. And it was mm. one of those moments where this The way society is very much set up is this presumption of a person that is, you know, the person there for you and very much your book is about you being your own person or not having a person for whom, you know, that is a responsibility, whether that's a child or a partner or another family member. So I want to talk about that with a view to, you know, what, what that means now when we're talking about, say, quarantine and being isolated, there's almost this presumption that you'll be isolated with at least one other person, so not exactly in isolation, uh, and that, you know, you have someone that will look after your interests or take yeah. care of you. Mm. Uh, that's certainly something that you've been considering and, and that you've been writing about as well, not just in this collection, but in uh, a forthcoming essay that's set to be published in the group review would you like to touch on on this topic because it is one that I found incredibly moving I've certainly been in that situation myself of being in emergency and having my my mind spinning about who should I put
1: down yes oh you have I, I thought it was have. just me no 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 I'm <laughs> sure fantastic it is a, it's news. not a unique experience yes. well you've just healed me thank you <laughs> because you know there's a certain amount of shame that comes with that the attempting to answer that question uh so what was happening was uh, I I love my doctor and my um surgery is is just wonderful but their computer keeps shooting up the question about my next of kin so I get asked that repeatedly and what I the the experience I write about in the essay, uh, Wolf Moon, it is, um, is that experience of, you know, I'm really confronting the fact that I'm not well, that I don't quite know who to put on that list. Um, I was feeling, you know, I was desperately fragile that day as well as just being kind of sick with tinnitus and lung things and just, you know, generally unwell. And there it was, that question again, Uh, you know, we don't have a next of kin for you, can we put that down? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I certainly have next of kin, but they live in Western Australia and that's just not going to, um, you know, help here. Uh, And I hadn't decided or gone through the process of asking a particular friend to be my next of kin. And I hadn't done that since the last time they asked me and the time before that, because I just have never felt like I could uh, burden a friendship with that. Um, Friendship is a particular kind of relationship. And you know, there has to be some ground covered, I guess, before you can say, will you be my next of kin? And they may say no, and quite reasonably.
0: It's a really interesting thought, uh, Donna, and uh, just to push back slightly on that, I certainly have had that experience where I've been unpartnered and I um, didn't know who to put down as next of kin and then had a few very angry friends say, why didn't you put us down, your family? Yes, 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 I get that too. I'm going to
1: get that after this interview. You absolutely
0: (laughs) are. But this is a, you know, I, I... remember a kind of show from like the early 2000s called spaced and oh. there was a line in it which is friends of the family of the 21st century and yes. and i and i did I do wonder at that because you know you, you sort of say that friendship is something that has its edges and yes. that has its boundaries, yes. but perhaps in this you know post kind of feminist period, oh well, not post, hopefully, hopefully very <laughs> definitely still within yes. it, but in this period where we're deconstructing notions of of like nuclear families yes. that were themselves, you know, constructions out of a more eclectic or a more you know wide-ranging notion of family a a more kind of collectivist notion of family that in fact you know this idea of communities are more than simply you know based on this very simple structure that that revolves around a heterosexual marriage.
1: Yes if I can say um, you know just to avoid any (laughs) backlash from my friends really um, since I've written this book and since I've thought that through these issues um, I have a group of friends who are making statements and claims on me to um, respond to to call and reach out to them but I do think um, even though that's been a process of its own that has spun me well now, um, I think that this book you know one of the aims of it is to have that conversation to give people the courage to talk with friends, to open up this whole Mm. question around friendship because I too suffered from that line about friends being the the family of the 21st century. It is an easy throwaway line and certainly when I was growing up in the second wave of feminism, that was being stated, you know, I can live without a a man because my friends will see me through and I'm here to tell you that they didn't, they were too busy with their family and so they should have been, you know, because they do have... In setting up a family, there's a set of obligations and responsibilities that are very clear, mm. and friendship is not clear. It isn't. There's no contract in friendship.
0: Uh, and I think it's an interesting thing because we are, a, you know, an incredibly individualist society mm. in many ways, mm. and you know, we're redefining notions mm. of gender and gender mm. constructs and the way we look at yes. um, the roles that people yes. are supposed to play. But in some ways this notion of, of coupledum is quite trenchant yes. uh, of, of a family in a in a nuclear sense. So, mm. you know, it is a, a sort of interesting thing to live a life in defiance of an ex- a societal expectation, which is what you have, regardless of choice yes. uh, initially. Um, it does take these great acts of daily bravery, which I think yes. you've, do- you've documented in a, yes. a wonderful
1: I love that way. idea of acts of daily bravery. It feels very strongly uh, what I've done and what I think many people in this situation are doing because you have to have some very delicate conversations in order to protect yourself in a way and, and support yourself. Yeah,
0: Well, Donna, it's amazing because we've spent most of this hour together and yet there's much more to talk about in this book, uh, not least of which is the fact that you kind of go through all these periods of your life um, covering, uh, you know, the years from childhood onwards mm. that really do give a, a beautiful sort of image of, you know, where you've come from, when you where you've gone to, focusing obviously on the evolution of you living the life that you're living. Mm. Uh, it, it is in, in and of itself <clears throat> a beautiful sort of journey to go on uh, and I very much recommend that people join <laughs> you on it, Donna. Thank, thank you.
1: It. It's been such a pleasure to it's have you today. It's been great. Thank you very much, Mom.
0: Thank you. That was Donna Ward, uh, who spent the hour with me talking about She I Dare Not Name um, Spinsters Meditations on Life. It's really a book for anyone to read, I have to say. It's a book on life, uh, but particularly uh, on a life that actually is becoming perhaps more common, uh, but one that still challenges conventions in a way that we don't talk about nearly often enough. Independently Yours, Triple R. 102.7.